I want to start with this scenario. I want you to imagine you're up in one of our beautiful canyons here. We've dammed up the water to hold on to it so our water supply is significant. And while you're there, the dam cracks and it's obviously going to break. And you rush down the valley, you rush down the canyon as fast as you can. And there at the very end of the mouth of the canyon are just all these innocent people and children playing in the streets. And you know their lives are about to end if you don't do something. Tell me what you would do. How many of you would sit down and write a letter and mail it to them? I mean, that's a legitimate way to warn people, right? If, you, if, if Toyota discovers that one of their cars has a safety concern, they send letters to everyone. Hey, we're recalling this part. Would you write a letter to everyone in the, that's about to face the danger of that broken dam? Uh, no, plus it just kind of expensive. Yeah, it, it's pretty expensive. That's pretty awful inconvenient. Would you send an email? I mean, tell me what you do. You would yell at the top of your lungs as loud as you could, as long as you could. Wouldn't the urgency in your voice match the danger? Is it safe to say that when someone is yelling because danger is coming, you could pretty much gauge the danger by how loud they're yelling. An example, okay, I used to, I had a son, he's now 11, but when he was a kid, he was fascinated with knives. The bigger, the more fascinated he was. He just was fascinated by knives. I don't know why, but he was fascinated by knives. And one day I'm doing the dishes and the dishwasher is open and the bottom drawer's out and there's our big butcher knife. I mean, the big butcher knife. And he's over here at the table and I can just, it's like a honing bait beacon went off. As soon as that bottom drawer comes out and the butcher, I saw him see the butcher knife. And it was like, now, over there at the table, do I scream? Because what's the danger right now? I'm concerned. He's looking at the knife. So can you gauge my voice level at that point? Now, I warned him, Keegan, no. He ignored that voice. And he got down from the table and started making his way to the dishwasher. Now, is this next voice the same voice? Do I repeat voice number one? I don't. Because why? The danger's increasing. Now that he's down from the table and headed towards the dishwasher, the danger is increasing. Therefore, is it safe to assume that so will my warning voice increase? If he ignores that second voice, Keegan, no. And he comes and he reaches out to the knife. What's going to happen now? I want to hear you scream. <laughs> you want me to do it right here? <laughs> no, please don't. You won't see the knife because the danger is increasing, the voice increases. Years ago, I made a connection that has never, I, has changed me. And I want it to change you. 
If you were an apostle and saw a problem with your Syriac eyes, if you had Syriac eyes and you saw into the future and you saw danger coming, what would be the level of voices? For an apostle, what is voice number one? What would you think voice number one is for an apostle of God? I think voice number one is a conference talk. I think that's voice number one, a conference talk. Hey, I I have a concern. I want to talk about it in conference. As the danger increases, what's voice number two? If you were an apostle and you saw danger coming and you've already given a conference talk, what's voice number two? Proclamation. I think that we're going to get there. Okay. What would be voice number two for an apostle? Devotional? Maybe a youth devotional. Maybe a, uh, what do they call them? Face-to-face, right? Maybe gather that specific audience. Now, do you sense a little bit more of an urgency than a conference talk? Something's compelling me to get you together and I want to talk. That's voice number two, right? So don't you sense the danger is increased and that's what's driving this? So what is apostles screaming at the top of their lungs as loud as they can? Proclamation. And I'm going to take it up a notch. We've had lots of, we've had seven proclamations. Which one is them screaming the loudest? A proclamation that they make into an institute class, a religious class, and ask every young single adult to take it. Family and the restoration. Why are you here, Sarah? Total honesty. For BYU pathway credit? I can't graduate from BYU without taking eternal family. Do you see what I'm trying to say? There are four classes you have to take. The brethren collectively wrote a proclamation, but that wasn't enough. Even the proclamation wasn't enough. They said, we got to yell louder because people aren't listening. We got to yell louder. How about we take that proclamation and make it the basis of a class, a college level class that you can't graduate from one of our institutions without taking. Do you see, can you hear them yelling at the top of your lungs? Now, I totally respect that. I want to graduate, so i got to take this class. But do you see what I'm saying? We're not hearing. Even this voice, we're not hearing. Oh, I have to take this class in order to graduate. Why do you think they made this class required in order to graduate? What are the other three classes you have to take to graduate from a church institution? I got to study the Book of Mormon, the whole Book of Mormon, not a single document, not one chapter, the whole Book of Mormon. Okay, what's the next one? The whole restoration. I got to go from the beginning of the restoration to the end. I need to understand the whole restoration. How many documents are involved in teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon? 15 books in the Book of Mormon, at least, right? How many documents are involved in Foundations of the Restoration? 138 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, plus the official declaration, plus all of the writings of Joseph Smith, 
Pearl of Great Price, First Vision. What's the third one? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I've got to understand the role of the Savior. How many documents are involved in that class? Old Testament, New Testament, Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. And then one more class. How many documents are involved in that class? One single sheet of one piece of paper is this entire class. Are you catching the vision of what I'm trying to say? They can't yell louder. The biggest problem they see coming in your life is the disintegration of your family. There is no greater danger than the disintegration of not families, your family. They see the danger and the enemy who has targeted your family. Do you see why this class is so sick? It's not just, oh, I got to take this class so I can graduate. It's, I'm listening. Go ahead. Speak. Because I'm listening. Now, let me show you a pattern. I'm a pattern hunter. I look for patterns. Patterns catch my attention. Let me show you another pattern, okay? I would suggest that the war chapters in the Book of Mormon, there's a lot of war chapters. Have you ever, has that ever puzzled you? No. Have you ever just said, why are there war chapters in the Book of Mormon? It's going to force you to make what conclusion? Why doesn't it bother you? It doesn't bother me because there's a lot to be learned. Because, uh, what, what, but why? How to, how to fight wars? You, you see the connection, right? It's talking about a war. The war chapters in the Book of Mormon begin when someone among the Nephites wants to be king. He's not chosen. He's offended. He gathers his forces and he fights against the people who didn't choose him to be their king. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Can you think of someone else who wanted to be king, wasn't chosen, got angry, rebelled, gathered his forces, and now is fighting against the very people who didn't choose him to be their king. Wait a minute. Ding, 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 ding. Now I see why the war chapters in the Book of Mormon are there, because it's a pattern of a war that I'm fighting. The war chapters in the Book of Mormon are how to win the war begun in pre-mortal life. That is now what raging here on earth. All the secrets on how to win the war are in those war chapters. Now, let me show you a connection to what I just talked about. Turn with me to, so, no, let's just, we don't have time. Turn with me to chapter 49. Now, in chapter 49, let's go to where Amalekiah attacks. Now, tell me what you know Captain Roni is doing. As Amalekiah is becoming king of the Lamanites, tell me what, tell me what Moroni is doing. He's preparing the people. He's defending the cities. Moroni is prepared for the attack, much like prophets who see the danger and will have us prepared. Prophets will always have us prepared. Prophets will know exactly where they're going to attack and how they're going to attack. And prophets will have us def defended. So in Alma chapter 49, Amalekiah attacks. 
But Moroni is completely prepared for him. He has dug up banks and he has fortified the front. The only way into the city is through the entrance. If they go around the sides, they can just shoot arrows or throw things or big rocks at them. So the Lamanites come through the front door and the, the Nephites are completely prepared for them. So then they start coming up the side and it doesn't work. Let's read how it goes. Ready? Uh, verse 13, Moroni had fortified or built forts of security for every city and all the land round about. Um, verse 15, no, let's jump down to verse 18. Alma 49, 18. Now the Lamanites could not get into their forts of security by any other way save by the entrance because of the highness of the bank which had been thrown up and the depth of the ditch which had been dug round about, save it were by the entrance. And thus the Nephites were prepared to destroy all such as should attempt to climb up or enter the fort by any other way. 20, they were prepared, yea, a body of their strongest men with their swords and their slings to smite down all should attempt to come into their place of security by the entrance. And anyone who tried to come up the walls, verse 21, it came to pass that the captains of the Lamanites brought up their armies before the place of entrance and began to contend with the Nephites and to get into their security. But behold, they were driven back from time to time, insomuch that they were slain with an immense slaughter. And if they did try to come up the sides, verse 22, instead of filling up their ditches by pulling down the banks of earth, they were filled up in a measure with their dead bodies. Therefore, verse 23, someone read the very first part of verse 23, just up to the semicolon. Thus the Nephites had all power over their enemies. And this was the weakest city. This was the weakest city. What was the body count? End of verse 23. What's the body count? A thousand Lamanites were slaughtered. How many Nephites? Zero. Okay, this is the weakest city. Where in the world are the Lamanites going to have any success? How long should this war have lasted? One chapter. It should have been over in one chapter. Every city was fortified, and the body count in their weakest city was a thousand Lamanites to a not a single Nephite. So why are there more chapters to the war chapter than one? They don't get up. Nope, it's not because of something the Lamanites do. The Nephites opened the front door. The Nephites opened the front door. Chapter 50 is mistake number one, and chapter 51 is mistake number two. And it's the same mistakes we're, we're making today. Skim through the heading of chapter 50 and tell me what is mistake number one? What continued the war? What allowed the Lamanites to conquer the, the fortified cities of the Nephites? They had all power. They had all power over the Nephites until they did what? Dig a little bit. What happened in chapter 50 that is a message? Is Mormon screaming out at the top of his lungs saying, do you see what I see? What happened in chapter 50 that's going to open the front door and allow this war to continue? Wickedness. 
this an abomination? Can you, that's pretty generic. What was it though? Chapter 50. Let me tell you the story. There's a city by the name of Morianton and a city by the name of Lehi. And guess what they start doing? Getting rich. They start arguing over a little teeny piece of land. And it got heated to the point where guess what happened? Guess what happened between the city? Go to chapter 50. Guess what happened between the city of Lehi and the city of Morianton? They start fighting. They look at verse 26. It turns into a warm contention between them, insomuch that the people of Morianton took up arms against their brethren and were determined to slay them. Now, where's the real enemy? Tell me where the real enemy is. Where's the real enemy that wants to destroy both of them? The Lamanites. Who did they think the enemy was? Each other. Each other. And when this is the perceived enemy, we open the door to the real enemy. Now, do you see what Mormons saw in our day? We have all power over Satan. Until we do what? Until we start contending amongst ourselves. So if I'm Lucifer and I look at family, I look at family. As long as that family stays intact, how much power do I have over it? As long as that family lives their covenants and obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ and fills that home with love and peace and spirit, how much power do I have over that family? None. So what do I do? What do I do? Do you see it? And then I just sit back and wait for the door to go wide open. If I were Lucifer, I am coming after your family. And I'm just going to wait until this starts. And the front door opens. And then I come in and destroy you all. When they make mistake number two in chapter 21, guess which was, guess which was the second and the third, no, fourth, third and fourth city taken. Go to chapter 51. The first city, let's get there. Um, let's go to verse 26. After they took the city of Moroni, that was first. What was the second city? Nephi. What was the third city? And the fourth? So they were worried about what? They were worried about a little teeny strip of property and what else and what had happened in the end. They wiped them both out. Do you see what Mormons saw? Are you hearing 
what prophets, seers, and revelators are screaming at the top of the lung, their lungs. There is no more important thing to do. There's no more important doctrine. There's no more important warning in our day than to protect your family. It is the greatest source of happiness in your life and can be the greatest source of pain. No one will make you happier than the family unit. Would you agree? And no one will hurt you more than the family unit. Now, those are the battle lines. Prophets, seers, and revelators are screaming out that you have an enemy trying to destroy your family. And the way they're going to do it is within. So this class is being asked of all of us. Would you all take the eternal family class and talk about the armor would you develop the skills? Would you understand the doctrine and hear the warnings about your family disintegrating and the door opening and the enemy coming in and destroying? What's funny is even this class has become perceived as what? Sarah, I don't mean to pick on you, but... How many foundation classes have you taken? This is my third. Why'd you leave this one? The early one. I want to hear it. Be totally honest. Why did you leave this one towards the end? You're you're telling my story. Satan got in and my husband left. I don't family. want to talk about the family. I don't want to talk about the family. I don't want to talk about I don't want to take a class on the family. That fascinates me. Now, I taught at the University of Utah Institute, college campus, college students, master's degree, bachelor's degree. Here's the three classes. Ready? One, two, three, four. We'll make this one the family. Guess what the attendance numbers are? Guess how many people take classes one, two, and three? It goes like this. And then like that. He's successful. I mean, he's got us not taking the very class that the brother is screaming out saying, you got to take this class. It is the least popular class of all the classes we offer in the Institute. Isn't that fascinating? So here's what I would like to do. I would, I rolled my sleeves up tonight. And anyone who's ever been in my class, I never roll up my sleeves. I deliberately rolled up my sleeves tonight because I want to take the approach with this class. This is the class we roll up our sleeves and we tackle the doctrines we don't want to talk about. I'm not talking about gender. Somehow this class has become a discussion on gender. If you want to have a discussion on gender, I'm happy to do that. But that's smoke and guns. That's smoke and mirrors. That's trying to hide the real doctrine. Let's talk about what makes families work and what breaks them apart.
Let's get good at the one thing these guys are yelling out we've got to be good at. Even if it's broken up, even if Satan has had some success. Let's get good at this. Let me tell you why. Do we believe in repentance? Can you have a broken family and still fix things? Yes. Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Now, once the the Nephites let the Lamanites into their guarded cities, how much effort will it take to win back their own guarded cities? So losing it was painful. It would have been easier to just stay in it, right? But can lost guarded cities be won back? Yes. Yes. That's the story of the war chapters. Who wins them back? Who is a key element in winning back the lost guarded cities? The stripling warriors, the youth. The Book of Mormon is trying to teach the same message that I hear the brethren trying to teach is we can win these back. Now, let me give you a reason why. Heavenly Father has many kingdoms of glory. We know that there's a celestial, we know that there's a terrestrial, we know that there's a telestial. Heavenly Father says, whatever you want, I have a kingdom that will make you happy. I want you to be happy. What kind of life will make you happy? Those who want a celestial life, I have a kingdom for you. It's not a kingdom of punishment. Get it out of your head that people go to the celestial kingdom to be punished. That is false doctrine. You don't go to a kingdom of glory to be punished. It's false doctrine. You go to a kingdom of glory because you did something really good. And you go there as a reward. And that's why you get a kingdom of glory. But those who go there only want that level of glory. Now, we know that there's three degrees in the celestial. Should we maybe assume there's three degrees in maybe each one of them or more? I have a document. There's a document where Joseph Smith used the word, the number 12. I don't know where he got it from. It's the only place in church history where that number appears. But Joseph Smith in one document said, There are 12 places between heaven and devils. 12. Heavenly Father says, I want my children to be happy. Look at the variety that I apply. Now, if you want the celestial glory, tell me what some of the requirements are. What do you learn in these classes about the requirements to be celestial? You have to have a desire. Okay. So we got desires. We've got faith. We've got repentance and baptism and covenants and temple. We've got the law of consecration. We've got chastity. We've got the law of the gospel. I could fill the line, right? Mm -hmm. These classes will say all these things are required to be celestial. Now, once I am celestial, How many more classes, how many more commandments are there to be exalted in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom? How many more commandments up and beyond being celestial is exaltation? The difference between celestial people and exalted gods are how many commandments? Show me on your fingers. What is that? 
family. Family. I have to get it right. I can make some mistakes and repent, but in the end, I have to get it right. I have to get family right. I can go to any one of these as an individual. So Heavenly Father said, it is my work and my glory to bring to pass the, there's immortality. Okay, there it is. I want my children to have immortality. And then he said, the immortality and there's eternal life. His work and his glory is to provide a kingdom of glory for his children. And for those who choose it, exaltation. And the difference between those two? To be like Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. To do what they do and have the glory that they have. What is the one requirement besides being celestial? It's family. I've got to make it work. So what does that mean? Making it work. Tell me what that means to you. What does it mean? What does it mean to make family work? Any thoughts? What does that mean? Um, I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but there's this whole idea that if you want it to last forever, you have to achieve it. So okay, so I have to have certain desires, right? Is that a good summary? Sure. I have to have, I have to want an eternal family. I think in order to make a family work, you have to put in work. Okay, I have to do. I have to want. I have to do. Any others? Sacrifice your will. Okay, I have to let go. I have to let go. Any others? Let go of pride. Okay, so that's just another one of these, right? There's certain things I have to let go of. There's a whole lot of things. Can I take anything that's terrestrial or telestial into this kingdom? So I have to let go of a lot of things or else I'll follow those things into a lesser kingdom where family doesn't follow me. What's another one, Adam? Protect. Okay, so I th there are certain things I have to protect. And let me add, there's certain things I need to know. Now, guess where all of that got wrapped up? You know what we call it? <laughs> the proclamation. The proclamation. <laughs> it's exactly what we call it. So my invitation to you. Now, here's my invitation. I'm going to show you. I'm going to do the same thing that I'm going to invite you to do. Uh, let me pull up my screen. Okay, here is, uh, for example, here is my latest proclamation. We've digested this piece of paper like no other piece of paper I own. 
Every word, every sentence, every paragraph. So here's my invitation. No matter what you thought, no matter what your perspective was, no matter what history you have, no matter what success or failure there's been in the past, my invitation to you is to just start. with a clean copy. Take whatever form you want to print. I can provide a print. You can print it out. There's, I think we all have access to this. Do you need my help to print one out? Whether it's a digital copy or a print copy, take a blank copy and look with fresh set of eyes, knowing that prophets, seers, and revelators are screaming as loud as they can about the greatest danger they see. Knowing that the Book of Mormon foresaw that, we would forget that there's a real enemy and we would turn on each other. What are the doctrines? What are the things I need to protect? What are the things I need to let go of? Let this document help you create a whole new list as if you were seeing it for the first time. Anyone have it memorized? I love when people memorize it. If you don't, that's totally fine. But I think the idea is course number one, hundreds of pages. Course number two, Hundreds of pages. Course number three, thousands of pages. Course number four, one page. I think that's so significant. So how about we just start clean and we come each week with a fresh set of eyes saying, Lord, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to protect so that I don't lose the most important thing to me? I leave you with my testimony. Our Heavenly Father, I don't mean to be facetious. What could an omnipotent God do for fun? Do you think do you think God's play do you think they play do you think they bowl? No. Do you think bowling is fun for a God? No. Why not? It's fun for me. It's fun for me because it takes a lot of skill to do it right. And when I there's it's it's fun to do it right. Why is boring not fun for gods? Uh, there's no skill. There's no challenge to it. Gee, I wonder if this is gonna be a strike. Gee, I wonder, the pins would lay down for a God. So what do gods do for fun? Do they drive their monster vehicles in the mud? That's my solution. <laughs> <laughs> do they ski? No. They could ski uphill if they wanted to. What, do, what does our Heavenly Father do for fun? Um, as somebody who really likes books and stories, I have to imagine that Heavenly Father finds satisfaction in, get, in helping us to get the ending that we want in our stories. 
And like, not only that, but he puts a lot of work into them. And so I think that his idea of fun, his idea of satisfying work is to get us through that story, to get us through our journeys and to safely back home. He said, my work and my glory is your happiness. Family, guess what gods do for fun? In one word, what do gods do for fun? Family. Family. Do you see the skill I have to master if I want to be a god? Now, I admit family is a source of pain. And because it's a source of pain, sometimes we just don't want to talk about it. I invite you to start with a clean slate. And what are the skills? What are the doctrines? How do I, as a family member, help your ending? How do I help my wives, my children? What are the skills? What are the doctrines? What are the practices? What are the sacrifices that I need to do to make this right? That's what we're going to study this semester. I'll leave you with my testimony that God's greatest happiness is family. My greatest happiness is family. My greatest heartbreak is family. You got to get it right. There are skills to be acquired, even for people who've been members of the church their whole life. There are skills to be acquired. There's knowledge to be gained. There's things to be let go of. There's things to protect. Let's find them in this class. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.